good to see that my chairman and I are of one mind. I can get weather like this in Manchester any day. <laughs> I'd like to read, please, from the first book of the Bible, from the book of Genesis, and we'll read from Genesis chapter 12, please. Genesis chapter 12. Lovely to be here again in Stowmarket and to renew fellowship with dear fellow believers, some of whom we've known for many years. Genesis chapter 12 deals with the call of Abram. We'll read from the opening verse. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And, rem and he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And I will go over to the New Testament, please, and to the epistle to the Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. And finally back to Paul's letter to the Romans. And chapter 4, please. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verse 12. And the Father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet 
uncircumcised. Verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those which be as not, which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And may the Lord bless the reading of his precious word to our hearts, along with other scriptures that we'll refer to this afternoon, and I do simply want, with the Lord's help in this first session, to go back to the opening book of the Bible and to see how the life of these great patriarchs fits in to God's overall scheme of dealing with men and women in those early days. I believe, without a shadow of doubt, that there is great profit in spending a lot of time in analyzing the first book of the Bible that has been referred to as the seed plot of the Bible, because out of it spring so many of the major themes of the Word of God. And I suppose that if we struggle with the book of Genesis, uh, that we will struggle with other parts of the Word of God. Uh, and the converse is undoubtedly true. If we're able to get a grasp of the main themes in the book of Genesis, that will help us in our study of God's Word in many other places also. So let me suggest that we've read from Genesis chapter 12 for this simple reason, that it is one of the great divisions of the book. In the opening 11 chapters of Genesis, there are four major events that are outlined, and these four events shape the narrative and all that God is doing in those early days as he deals with men. And so I'm referring to the creation in chapters 1 and 2, God's creatorial might and power displayed, and this is followed in chapter 3 by the fall of man with the catastrophic consequences of the fall and the terrible tragedy of man being sent out of God's presence and the consequences upon all who lived and who would succeed. And then in chapter 6, God has to judge the world in righteousness. God is absolutely righteous in all his dealings. And so in this opening book of the Bible, the statement is made, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God always has done right and always will do right. And so he judges the world and the flood is detailed and described. And then in chapter 11 we have the, disperse, the dispersion that results from man's attempts to build a tower to reach unto God. And we see again how God deals in righteousness. And so these four events shape these opening chapters. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the Babel dispersion. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we can't help but notice that the whole character of the book seems to change. And from chapter 12 right through to chapter 50, four 
dominant personalities come to the fore in the word of God. Four outstanding individuals, and I'm referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these four individuals are described in varying detail, and through them we learn great and precious and important lessons about how God deals with men. And so the book deserves to be read, studied, meditated upon, and if we see this first step in the Pentateuch uh, as outlining man's ruin, uh, and then think of the second book as, see, uh, as outlining the redemption possible through sacrifice, and then in the book of Leviticus, communion made possible, uh, and in the fourth book, direction given to God's people, and then in the fifth book of the Pentateuch, destination clearly outlined and made absolutely wonderfully possible when we have in a very real sense practical lessons that can help the Lord's people from any age in dispensation. And so I want to think about some of these great individuals. Now I know that there are many great men and women mentioned in Genesis. I wonder whether it is a useful thing just to link together the lives of some of those who left their mark in the day and generation in which they live. It seemed to me remarkable as I read through the, uh, the first five books of the Bible in my devotional readings. I tend to do that in the first three months of the year. And I couldn't help but notice that many of them feature in the list of names mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. I think of Abel, whom I meet in Genesis chapter 4. This man who's immortalized in the Word of God as a man who offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. His name means vapor or exhalation. In contrast with his brother, whose name means possessions. And Abel offers a sacrifice that is at once a confession of his own sin and guilt. And on the other hand, an expression of a deep desire to draw near to God. And he offered a more excellent sacrifice. And he's followed in Genesis chapter 5 by another great man. I love that expression, the books of the generations of Adam. And then that long list of names that follows in Genesis chapter 5 of men who all died with one glorious exception. For out of that generation, it must have brought tremendous pleasure to the heart of God. As God looked down and saw one, who walked with him. And Enoch walked with God. And in days of utter depravity and lawlessness and rebellion, it surely is a great encouragement that Enoch walked with God and he was God and he was not, for God took him to himself. And so I thought of this man living in those godless days. And he obtained this testimony that he pleased God. I think that we would all agree, dear fellow believers, that these days that we live in aren't easy days for God's people. I don't think there would be one dissenting voice here today that these days don't represent a great challenge to the people of God. I wonder whether you'll allow me to say that even as it was possible to walk with God in those days, it's still possible to walk with God today. It's still possible to bring pleasure to the heart of God. It's still possible to please God. And Enoch walked with God. And then by the time we come into Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, we're introduced to another great man. 
One who stood out in his day and generation. One whose life made an impression upon those amongst whom he lived. He also is described as a man who walked with God. He's a fascinating character. This preacher of righteousness who continued to preach and testify in very difficult days. One warned of God. I can understand why God judged the ancient world in the days of Noah. It isn't a mystery to me that God spared not those who lived in those days. It makes it even more remarkable that through Noah, God's favor was seen upon him. And that in Noah, this man who is warned of God, who has the best interests of his family at heart, prepares an ark. And according to the word of God, obeyed all the commandments of the Lord. And so he's, we see him in the old world in chapter 6. And then we follow his progress in chapter 7 as he enters the ark. And we see him safe and secure. And then we see him emerge in chapters 8 and 9 into the new world. And there are surely parallels that can be drawn between the days of Noah and the days of our uh, the days of our generation, the days in which we live. Indeed, to me it's interesting that when the Lord Jesus Christ comments on, on those days in Luke's Gospel, he makes this interesting observation, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. And I think that we could conclude from that that the Lord Jesus Christ is making it absolutely crystal clear that the heart of man hasn't changed. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage in those days, and it seems today in which we live that those things occupy quite a large part of the time of people amongst whom we live. And so the Lord Jesus Christ makes this solemn statement that that day came suddenly. It came without warning and it involved great suffering. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abram. And this man appears on the page of Scripture. And this outstanding man, referred to three times over in the Scriptures as the friend of God, is called. And if we listen to what the New Testament has to say about him, and then link up one or two passages in the Old Testament, it surely is wonderfully significant that he's described as the friend of God on three occasions in Scripture. That Abraham is called to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house. That he's called to begin a journey. The God of glory appeared unto him and he begins this journey. And what is impressive about this man, I suppose if we ask the question, what is the distinguishing feature about Abraham, then we might feel that it's terribly important to observe what the Word of God says about him, that by faith, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so he moves by faith and begins this journey. And he knows that God is with him. I love that little expression that Paul uses 
in Romans chapter 4 and verse 12, in that chapter where he takes up Abraham and David as key examples of justification by faith, and he talks about the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. And I think that's a very helpful way of describing this life. The steps of that faith of our father Abraham. For when called in Genesis chapter 12, he obeyed. And he began that long journey that took him miles and miles away from home. And took him right through that area known today as the Fertile Crescent. And right through the Fertile Crescent. Because of course the Canaanite dwelt in the land at that time. And a man like that would never be welcome with Canaanites. His life was a very condemnation of their lives. Which is a great challenge to me today dear fellow believer. Because if the world doesn't find me an enigma, it says something about the quality of my Christian life. If my neighbors and my friends and my colleagues don't find some of my activities uh, and words unusual, then I would find that a, a real challenge. A Abraham couldn't be understood. He gets right down through the fertile crescent and arrives in a mountainous area and there he does what he often does at various intervals in his life. He built his altar, he constructed his tent and he called upon the name of the Lord. And this friend of God who lived by faith begins to prove that God is able to help him in every circumstance of life. I wonder whether you'll just allow me to pause there just for a moment and remind our hearts today of what the Lord Jesus Christ said in his upper room ministry recorded in John's Gospel. As well as referring to his own as my disciples and my followers, and my brethren, he said, and I quote, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command. I wonder whether that challenges my heart today, that this was a man who is known as the friend of God, and he moves according to the will of God. And the steps of that faith of our father Abraham leading up to that great test in Genesis chapter 22 are fascinating and deserve to be studied. And that of course then leads us on to another outstanding individual. I refer to Isaac and it's wonderful to read through Genesis chapter 26 and to observe how he seems to be overshadowed to some extent by the man that comes before him and the man that follows him. Wonderful to notice that Egypt doesn't seem to present a problem for Isaac. He's a son who's conscious of the great blessings that he enjoys. The son of supernatural birth who's content to live close to home and enjoys all the blessings that are his and knows that they've been bought at a price. And I challenge again my heart today. For it is good to sing those sublime words that we sang together in our second hymn. Wonderful to know that we are the sons of God. Wonderful to follow Paul's teaching through the opening six chapters of Romans. Where the sons of disobedience become the sons of God. I love to sing one of our greatest hymns, There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering under sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. Wonderful that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, 
Isaac knew that he was wonderfully blessed. He didn't need to go down to Egypt. He went down to the border on one occasion, but he was a man who was happy to live close to home. He succeeded by a fascinating character, Jacob. And Jacob's life also deserves to be studied. And as we link together these individuals, Abel, the man of strong spiritual desire, Enoch, the man who walked with God, Noah, the man warned and who prepared an ark, Abraham, the man who believed God, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We have to conclude that when we come to Jacob, he seems to be always occupied. He's an active man. I'm not saying that he didn't have his defects. It's painfully obvious that he did. But he has two life-changing encounters with God at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28 where he learns about the house of God and in Peniel in Genesis chapter 32 where he sees the face of God and he was never the same again and he became an intercessor and according to what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 his last recorded activity on earth would be his first activity in the glory. For he worshipped as he went out of this life into the next. And he's a wonderful, wonderful character. But what would you say about a man called Joseph? The most detailed biographical account in the book of Genesis. Well, that surely brings before us whether it's in his father's home or down in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, or down in the prison where he's entrusted with prisoners, or eventually elevated to one of the most exalted positions in the land, we surely see in the life of Joseph suffering and glory. And suffering and glory run right through the book. And let me just say today that if it is the case that some dear believer here present finds themselves in deep and difficult trials, that our light affliction is but for a moment and worketh within us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so may the Lord help us and encourage us as we look at these great individuals whose lives appear on the page of Scripture. May it be my desire to offer to God that which is acceptable to Him. May it be my experience today that the appeal that Paul makes in Romans chapter 12 might challenge my heart. Having talked about the wrath of God and the justice of God and peace with God and the sons of God, he makes this all-embracing appeal in Romans chapter 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies acceptable unto God, that ye may know that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I thought then that these individuals teach me vitally important lessons for today. I long to do what Abel did. Not to trust in myself and my own merits, but to present to Him that which is acceptable. I, I trust that by the Lord's good hand and help it might be possible to walk 
with Him. To walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. I trust that it might be possible to do what Noah did and to live for God's glory and to prepare those that are under my influence that they might know the same spiritual joys as I do. I find it absolutely staggering then to come to these portions that we've read together in the Word of God today. And to think about this man, Abraham, who appears in Genesis chapter 12, and who is suddenly instructed to leave and to begin this journey that will take him away from civilized society, and that will test his resolve to the limit. I noticed in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, that the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. I believe that this wasn't the first time he heard the voice of God. But it was absolutely vital. If he was going to make progress, that he obeyed the voice of God. And just to allow this Simple fact to challenge all of our hearts today. I suppose that Abraham wouldn't have made any progress at all in spiritual things if he hadn't obeyed. So the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy kindred. So in verse 4, Abram departed. And in verse 6, Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem. And in verse 8, he removed from thence. And in verse 9, he's going on still toward the south. And in spite of the famine that's described in verse 10, he continues his journey, trusting to God to meet him and help him at every circumstance of life. And in chapter 50, 14, he, he continues to cope with various trials and tribulations that involve his family. And he, I suppose, had experienced great sadness in chapter 14. But it's wonderful to pick up the narrative thread again at the beginning of chapter 15 as we read that after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. And he hears this precious word, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield, thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham hears the voice of God to him yet again. And he's taken out, verse 5 tells us, and he's brought out abroad, and he's asked to consider the glory of God and to look toward heaven and to see the stars in their magnificence. And he's asked if he can count them and he's deeply moved by what he hears and what he sees. And the undeniable truth of everything that we read in these early chapters of the book of Genesis is simply this, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And he's given this wonderful panoramic view of the glory of the heavens. And then he's assured that as it is impossible to number the stars in the heavens, it will be impossible for him to number his descendants. And he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so this man has made significant progress. One of the problems that we feel afflicts us sometimes, certainly myself and my wife, is that we become so busy with legitimate activities that we cease to do what this man did on this night that he would never forget 
recorded in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5 where he looks into the heaven and he sees the stars and God speaks to him. I suppose that I would have to say that some nights we can't see too many stars up there in the great northwest in the city of Manchester because we live about 500 yards from the M60 circular motorway. And sometimes the atmosphere is affected by the pollution of living close to a city of over 2 million people. But it was absolutely vital for this man. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. He made the stars also. Or if you like, Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And so God speaks in creation. And God speaks to this man, the friend of God. And it was vitally important to, for him to learn these lessons. And God often reserves the right to do this with his servants. He'll take Moses away from the pleasures of Egypt, right out into the back of beyond in a desert, and he'll allow him for year after year after year, for a period of 40 years, to learn lessons that he has to learn if he's going to make progress in spiritual things. Before 40 years later, he's brought back onto the main stage. I, I love to see this. Even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we remember this, that even by the time he'd reached 30 years of age, his life had brought nothing but pleasure to the heart of God. And he did, then begins his final three-year uh, public ministry. And so this man sees God's creatorial might. The, the tragedy of modern man today is that they're given this same vision, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and yet man turns away in absolute rebellion. And their imagination and thoughts are profoundly distorted. And Paul argues that instead of worshipping the, the Creator, they worship the creature. And they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. It's tragic. And instead of bowing to God's truth, they change the truth of God into a lie. And it's awful. And instead of accepting God's clearly defined right way to behave between the sexes. They change the natural use to that which is against nature. And it's absolutely awful. I wouldn't want you to go through the center of Manchester in the early hours of a Monday morning to see the sights in that godless city up in the north of England where regularly festivals are held and invitations given to people all over Europe to participate in immoral activities. I wouldn't want you to see that. That's the condition of my city. It isn't really surprising that Paul argues God gave them up to uncleanness. He gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Dear fellow believer, it behoves us to know exactly the condition of the land in which we live. If God judged in the past, he will judge again. 
I believe that this nation is ripe for the judgment of God. And that is why Paul asks the question in Romans chapter 3 and verse 5 in connection with God's dealings and how he deals with ungodliness and how he deals with unrighteousness because that is always the order in, in Scripture. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Strange that Paul should talk about the wrath of God before he talks about the love of God. I know that he mentions in chapter 1 that the letter is written to the beloved of God, but who would have thought that on ten separate occasions in Romans chapter 1, in, in Romans chapters 1 to 16, he would talk about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And yet Abram was different. The friend of God begins to walk with God and in absolute obedience is taken further and further away from his homeland. And so the word of God tells us significant things about this man. And I'd love you to notice these expressions in Romans chapter 4 of how he reacted to this promise of God the word of God tells me this that he against hope believed he tells me this that he staggered not at the promise of God in Romans chapter 4 verse 20 I wonder whether we could underline that expression that Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. His faith was sufficient to grasp the implications of what God was saying to him. I have to say today that often my faith isn't sufficient. I wonder whether my faith is like the faith of the disciples. I wonder why they didn't seem to grasp things more quickly. Why is it that in the first book of the New Testament on four occasions they are reprimanded for their lack of faith? Why is it that in Matthew chapter 9 the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of a Gentile says, I have not found such faith, no, not in Israel. Why is it that in Matthew chapter 15 the Lord looks down upon a Canaanite woman and he says, O woman, great is thy faith. I would that the Lord would impress this lesson upon me as I think about the steps of that faith of our father Abraham that took him all the way to the place where he would be asked to give his son, his only son. He did have other sons, but God wants that which is most precious to his heart. And this great man, Abraham, can rise to that. And according to what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, is prepared to give that which is most precious. Well, dear fellow believer, today, May the Lord impress this lesson upon my heart. He will always value that which costs me something. God rarely rewards a casual giver. Oh, oh to be remembered as someone who gives that which costs something. To remember the words of a young American missionary killed in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956 on the banks of the Kurarai River. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or to be like a Mary of Bethany, one who one day met the Lord Jesus Christ who was invited into her home 
by her sister, who showed hospitality and sat at his feet. One who came to love him and one day fell at his feet in deep distress. One day she brought something that was costly and she anointed his feet with the perfume, with that beautiful fragrance. The alabaster box, he was broken. The contents given liberally and poured. It cost her everything. Or to be remembered as someone who gives and not someone who takes. Why is it that the Spirit of God brings in the same chapter a reference of one who had the back and bare what was put therein? Is it not that the Spirit of God is drawing a contrast between the alabaster box and the bag? Whenever I think of Judas, I think of what he took. Whenever I think of Mary of Bethany, I think of what she gave. Whenever I think of Judas, I think of the son of perdition. The word means waste. Whenever I think of her, I think of one of whom the Lord Jesus Christ said, she hath done what she could. And wherever the gospel is preached, that which she's done will be spoken of. I think of the possibility of giving that which is costly and bringing pleasure to his heart. To be remembered as someone who gives lavishly rather than someone who takes she gave, she gave her all, she gave it liberally, and it meant everything to the heart of Christ. And so may the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Oh, thank you for that, Andy. Right, just before we sing our final hymn, there's just, uh, we're adding... Hebrews 11, and there's just two verses in Hebrews 12, the first two, which I think uh, really apply to what you've been saying. And they are, Wherefore, seeing we, are, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Trust that Andy's message that, he's, uh, that the Lord laid in his heart and he's delivered to us, that it'll be an encouragement to each one of us to live for the Lord, to lay aside everything else and to focus solely on him. We'll sing number 84. Number 84. Have I an object, Lord, below, which would divide my heart with thee, which would divert its even flow in answer to thy constancy, who teach me quickly to return and cause my heart afresh to burn. Number 84, and if it's uh, convenient again, we'll rise to sing.
and prayer in just a moment. Uh, after that, we shall uh, have some uh, light refreshments. I've been asked to say that there are, there are a couple of little tables available for anybody uh, who feels that they would uh, like uh, and would be helped by one. So just uh, grab some of us uh, here who look familiar and we'll be happy to, to get one for you if that will be of help. Uh, as I said, the, uh, we'll have some refreshments and the next session starts at 6.15. If you're able to stay, uh, we'd, lovely to, we'd love you to and uh, you're all more than welcome to. I'll close in prayer. Our God and our Father, we come before thee. And Father, we thank thee that uh, you've uh, spoken to us from your word. Uh, Father, to show us, uh, Father, that this life is about living for you. It is about living for you in faith and not being distracted by the things of this world. Uh, for Father, we do live in a dark world. And Father, there are many distractions. Oh, but our Father, we have seen, uh, Father, these examples uh, from Genesis uh, Father, these, uh, these witnesses that speak to us and, Father, that, that show us the way that we should live our lives. Father, lives of faith and of obedience. Father, uh, we do pray this afternoon that, Father, that if there's anything in our lives that distracts us uh, from following Thee, from, Father, from having You as the centre uh, and as the all in all in our lives, Father, that it would be taken away and that You would teach us to have faith uh, Father, to live each day solely for Thee. Uh, Father, it is our desire that for our lives, Father, that You would be able to look on us. And Father, that You would be able to say, uh, as You said of Job, uh, Consider my servant perfect, upright, one that fears God, one that eschews evil. Or Father, it is a challenge to our hearts uh, today. But Father, may it, may it continue be, to be. Father, may you challenge each of us that we may examine our lives uh, and, Father, see uh, what can be done. Father, that we might give our all to thee. Uh, Father, it is our dutiful service. So, Father, we just pray that you would bless it to us. Pray indeed that you would give help uh, in the session this evening also. And, Father, now we give thee thanks for these refreshments. Uh, thank thee for your provision for us. Uh, and, Father, just pray that you would bless it to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.